0: We have a special request. What drives Shawnee and I to do this podcast and our day jobs is to try and help investors reach their financial goals. Whether you're in retirement or just starting out, you want to hear your story and how Morningstar has helped you build a better financial future for your family. We're filming a short set of testimonial videos that will go through your journey. If you're a Sydney based Morningstar premium subscriber and you'd like to take part, the link to the surveys in our episode notes. If we pick you, we'll extend your premium subscription for a year as a thank you for helping out. Thanks and looking forward to hearing from you. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature does not take into consideration your personal circumstances situations or needs so Shani we we wanted to keep publishing podcasts over Christmas, New Year's period, Mm -hmm. and we're both taking a little bit of a break from work. Mm -hmm. You are taking a longer one.
1: Three weeks, which is going to be great. Because you're very lucky. Yeah. I haven't had a break that long since um, uni, so that would be like six years ago.
0: Yeah. Same. Yeah. (laughs) I moved to Australia. I stopped working in the US on a Thursday. Uh I moved to Australia and started work on Monday. That's crazy, man. So, yeah, that's something. Yeah. But uh, so this is the first episode of the new year, mm-hmm. so we'll be in two thousand twenty-two. Mm-hmm. And any New Year's resolutions that you have?
1: Yeah, to get a new job. No. Just. Wow. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Wasn't that no. your New Year's resolution last year? <laughs> it's every year. No, it's um. No, I don't actually have a new New Year's resolution. What about you? But
0: you always you you don't tell me about the new job one. You always come up <laughs> with one. You've got this like new gal January thing going.
1: Well, I always I do I do like we do our portfolio checkups. I do all of that stuff. And I set some goals based on financial circumstances. But
0: but we need to save that for our portfolio checkup episode. Yes. So-, so
1: I won't talk about that, but no, no goals.
0: So nothing nothing like personal? No. Okay. Well, yeah, that's what good. What about you? Um, I have nothing yet. So normally I wait till I have a couple on New Year's Eve. <laughs> And then come up with something completely outrageous. <laughs> Write
1: it in the notes section of your phone. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then
0: I give up on it immediately upon waking up. So yeah. it's like the ultimate drunk plan. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, exactly. But we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about some different investors. So maybe this will be an opportunity for people to come up with New Year's some resolutions. resolutions. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. So yeah, that's what we're doing today. So we're doing an episode um, where we're looking to learn from others, and it's taking lessons from other investors or business people that have been successful We've got five for today's episodes, all with varying backgrounds and different approaches to investing, but with pertinent and practical lessons that we can take away and apply to our own investing approach.
0: Yeah. And we tried to do different people, right? Mm-hmm. So this wasn't like all five Warren Buffett, Yeah. Um, <laughs> which considering this is right after New Year's is good because maybe people are taking a couple of days off from drinking. Exactly. And we wouldn't want them to have to play the Warren Buffett drinking game. Mm-hmm. That could be our New Year's Eve episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the first person up is a guy by the name of Nick Sleep. So Nick Sleep was an extremely successful investor, but not that well-known. And he started the Nomad Investment Partnership in 2001, and he ran it for 13 years. And in that 13-year period, he had a 20.8% annual return. And the index over this period was not a great time for the market, had a return of 6.5%, which is a pretty phenomenal result.
1: Yeah. And a large part of this is that he had a very wide mandate, which means that he was basically able to invest wherever he wanted. And this differs from a traditional fund manager where they have a pretty narrow mandate. And this is to cater for the financial planning industry that have very specific requirements. In Australia, if your fund is put on something called an approved product list or an APL of a financial services license, it means that all advisors that operate under that financial services license are able to put their clients into your products. When you have a very narrow mandate, the chances of getting put on an APL are much higher because advisors can slot your product in different asset allocations very easily.
0: Okay. So an example. So if you have a mandate where you can only invest in Aussie large cap stocks, you would have more of a chance of being put on an APL than if you're running a fund that had a mixture of micro cap, large cap, Aussie equity, emerging market equity, et cetera. So having a mix like this makes it very hard to slot that fund into a portfolio allocation. And this is very much the same issue that has happened across the world. Having wide mandates usually did not bring in flows into the fund as much as a narrow mandate. And fund flows, of course, equal more management fees taken and more management fees taken mean a more profitable business. So it was unusual for Nick to have such a wide mandate because it's not the industry norm. He had stocks from different countries, different sizes, or market caps and in different industries.
1: And there's a quote that Nick Sleep likes. It's the Woody Allen quote, and he relates it to why it's so important to have a wide mandate. And the quote is, being bisexual doubles the chances of a date on Saturday night.
0: Yeah, and maybe this is before your time, but any quote that involves dates and Woody Allen <laughs> isn't a great thing. Yeah, no. You're, you're at least... You I'm understand. Aware. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I didn't know that. It happened a while, but I guess it's been it's been in the news a lot. Hmm. Um, so yeah, his point stands, right? A wide mandate means more opportunities to uncover different investments.
1: So there are two big lessons from Nick's sleep. The first is that information like food has a sell by date. What he's referring to here is that most investors have information overload and we're surrounded by market noise, we're bombarded by it every day. And one of the secrets is figuring out what is pertinent information and what we should ignore. And Nick thinks that we should ignore the vast majority of it.
0: Yeah, and Nick talks about this interview he saw of David Attenborough. And the interviewer was saying to David that he has seen most of the world, more than almost anyone else. So he must be the best naturalist that's ever lived, just because he has such a wide viewpoint of what's going on. And so David Attenborough replied, I'm not Charles Darwin who spent four years traveling and the rest of the time thinking, and that is why he is the world's greatest naturalist. And Nick agrees with this, and he wrote about it in one of his investment letters. He thinks that studying something intensely is important, but then he thinks you should go away and think. He talks about how the human mind needlessly collects all of this data, and what this does is that it interferes with the process of stepping back and having rational thought or critical thinking about what is happening. It's just this information collection mechanism.
1: So as investors, we're constantly exposed to the news cycle and it's human nature to think that we need to react to everything. We're also told that this is what we need to do by the news, by the media, in the way that this information is portrayed. But that is one of the hardest parts about investing. It's staying the course, understanding your objectives and sticking to the decisions that you have made. And there's so much information around you that will cause this to sway and shift.
0: Yeah. And so, what Nick thinks is the best thing you can do is, and what you should be thinking about when you do this, unlike us who think about that Gidley burger that we (laughs) talked about in a previous episode. Um, But yeah, he thinks what we should do is we should take a step back and think about what makes a good business. And he says that really at the end of the day, it's pretty simple human attributes that lead to a business's success. So, take a step back, look at why this business is successful long term. And that means thinking a lot about competitive advantages.
1: And we have another quote of his that speaks to this. And Nick says, you feel differently drinking a Coke rather than a no-brand cola. Think about that and think about why that is. And what is the consumer benefit that a lot of these companies are solving for people? And a lot of that is just about an emotional connection and different stimuli that a brand makes you feel or the way that you feel when you're consuming a product. So the lesson is to step back and spend some time thinking instead of just looking at the data.
0: And we have one more quote from Nick, which is related to Shawnee's upcoming vacation. That's the joy of doing nothing. So he says that good investing is a minority sport, which means in order to earn returns better than everyone else, we need to be doing things different to the crowd. And one of those things that the crowd is not is patient. So he's talking about patience here, and this is applicable. And he's talking about professional money managers, but it's applicable to both professionals and just individual investors. And we don't realize that patience is a competitive advantage or an investing edge for us. It's important that we take advantage of the fact that we don't have any pressure apart from ourselves, pressure to keep up with friends or what's in the newspaper. In reality, an investor with a long time horizon has no pressure to perform, and it allows you as an investor to patiently wait, which a lot of professional fund managers don't get the opportunity to do, and a lot of investors don't have the discipline to do.
1: So when we look at Nomad, they have a holding period of five years versus an industry average of one year. Just the ability of being able to hold these holdings for longer when in their favour and Nick is a strong believer in that equity returns would increase over time. He thinks short holding periods means there is intense competition to know where a share price is going to go and a lot of pressure to get it right. But if you can take a step back and look at what is the longer-term risk, not the risk that a share price will go down in a year, but the longer-term risk to the company, that's going to drive those longer-term returns and it makes it a lot easier to be a successful investor.
0: Yeah, it means that you're not worried about what the next inflation reading is going to be. You're not worried about interest rates being raised in one year or 14 months. All you have to do is take a step back and look at the business and ignore all of that market noise.
1: One more quote. He says, in our opinion, business outcomes can be more predictable seven years out than they are in the near term. For example, we have no idea where the market will end this year, but given corporate strategies, capital allocations, and starting valuations, I think we have some idea of how companies will evolve over the next five years. In other words, the return from investing in shares can be both increased and de-risked over time. Time creates opportunities And maybe that's something that we can all think about now, depending on what your viewpoint of the market is. Time creates opportunities, and that's what you need to take advantage of those opportunities. And that is cash.
0: Yeah. So dry powder. Dry powder. (laughs) Yeah. So if you believe, like I think the two of us and Morningstar in general, that the market is overvalued, you might be employing a strategy to save a reserve of cash for when the market does correct may feel like over the next year, the next six months, you're falling behind as you see markets rise, but just remember the business cycle and the market cycle is not broken. At some point, there's going to be an opportunity to buy things cheaply. So what can you do to prepare for that? Keep some cash. Spend some time thinking about the long-term competitive advantage of businesses because that will enable you to focus in on those opportunities when the market does correct and then pull the trigger when it pulls back. So, we got an email from Dave, mm-hmm. and we actually you wrote a note to Dave. I did. A couple of minutes before that. It was mm-hmm. a very nice email, and Dave was talking about how he learned how important it is to ride out volatility in the market and how time in the market was more important than timing the market. So, he signed off his email with a quote that summed this up pretty perfectly, and it was that the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient.
1: All right. So should we move on to our next investor? Move on from Nick?
0: Let's do it. We've got four to go.
1: (laughs) We do. Um, Let's get a move on. So our next investor is not so much an investor, but a businesswoman, and it is Kat Cole. Although she's not an investor per se, she still has some great lessons for investors. Kat was a chief operating officer and the president of Focus Brands, and Focus Brands was a parent company mainly to the hospitality and restaurant chains. She was, though, the president of Cinnabon before she took on this role.
0: Have you ever had a Cinnabon? Never. Have you ever seen a Cinnabon? Never. Okay. Well, so that's probably a common Aussie experience, but mm-hmm. Cinnabon, Cinnabon, <laughs> Cinnabon, but it's it's basically it's in malls and airports in the US and they make these cinnamon buns and they're extremely high in calories and they smell really good. So it's one of those things where you walk around the mall and you're sort of like slowly drawn into them mm-hmm. and um, or the airport, I guess. And, you know, what she talks about, enough about the actual cinnamon buns, right? (laughs) Um, But what she she actually talks about, one of the business lessons that she talks about is goal setting. And that's something that we speak a lot about. And we obviously think it's very important. So if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to know how to get there.
1: And so she has two principles of risk. And the first one is related to goal setting. And it is to go down the least risky path, you need to identify your goal. And this confronted her when she took over Cinnabon, and Cinnabon, despite ballooning obesity in the U.S., had six years of net sales decline. Part of this was, of course, due to the GFC. People stayed out of all of the places that there were Cinnabons, which were airports and malls, and obviously discretionary spending was cut down.
0: It would be nice if you wouldn't look at me when you said ballooning obesity, but anyway.
1: (laughs) I was looking at you for the U.S. part, not for the ballooning
0: obesity. obesity. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway, despite this, people... And people generally wanting to eat healthier, um, it kind of created this situation, right, for Cinnabon that, you know, people are shying away from them. So her goal, and she was told this by the parent company, was to increase sales for Cinnabon. And there's no other direction than this. So that's that's her goal. That's what she's moving for. And so she started speaking to everyone at the company, and she realized that they had completely lost focus of this goal. And they lost focus because they were spending all their time trying to figure out a low-calorie option for this extremely indulgent dessert.
1: And immediately she sat there and started pointing out all the different issues with the approach. All these low-calorie snacks were high-volume snacks that you would eat every day, but Cinnabons were a treat. She also thought us making a low-calorie option that doesn't taste as good and doesn't provide them with the same satisfaction isn't going to increase sales because it won't resonate with consumers.
0: Yeah, so her solution to the problem was pretty simple. They just made the buns smaller. So if people wanted to order more, they could obviously always order more. But people could also just have a smaller portion size with less calories with the same decadent taste that they loved. And nobody liked this idea. So the franchises weren't happy. But guess what? Within a few years, the revenue doubled and it became a billion-dollar brand.
1: So that's the first principle. The first thing that she did was focus on the actual goal. This also means that you're ignoring information that doesn't matter and doesn't pertain to what you're trying to achieve. So the second principle of risk for CAT was that all gambles do not pay off, but you increase your odds for a more successful outcome if you can define and articulate your goal. And there is a good investing theme here, but let's talk a little bit about CAT. She has a pretty amazing story. Her parents, unfortunately, divorced pretty early on, and her father was an alcoholic. So she started working very early to support her family. And her first job was at Hooters, and she started doing very well to the point where they were asking her to go and train other people at different franchises.
0: Yeah. So she starts training people at different franchises, and she was having some problems because she was in uni at the time, right? And they wanted her to travel around to these Mm -hmm. different franchises. So she made a decision, unconventional- to drop out because Hooters had actually offered her a pathway to get the job that she wanted anyway. And she always said that uni was a means to an end for her. And it was just to get a better job and support her family. But now the safe option wasn't staying in uni. It was taking this opportunity. So when she left Hooters for Cinnabon, she was the executive vice president of the group.
1: So what do we get from this as investors? It's thinking about your goals and thinking about the easiest path to get there. When we think about the ways that we get to goals in investing, it's risk. Taking on more risk and volatility in your investments is how you increase your return, and it's how you're compensated for taking on more risk.
0: Yeah. And uh, if the lesson you got from this is drop out of uni, you're not listening <laughs> carefully enough. Should we, should we say that?
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, all
0: right. So yeah, let's get back to investing. So is investing one of the most important things to consider is what is the risk-free result of being an investor? And risk-free in this context is keeping your money in cash or government bonds. So we start there. And this can do one of two things for you. It can make sure that as an investor, you're taking the appropriate amount of risk. And in most cases, the risk-free rate does not get you to your goal. But if we start there, then we can start layering on risk to get us where we need to be.
1: So why don't investors normally get there? It's because they come at this equation from the opposite end of the spectrum. The approach most people take is that they want the most money possible, the wealth maximization approach, so they're not even thinking about a goal, and that's how you end up invested in investments you don't understand. And at the end of the day, that amount of risk might not be necessary for your goal. Your goal isn't to have the most amount of money possible. Your goal, at the very least, is to retire comfortably, and there are many goals that can be dotted in between that. So, important. Focus on the destination and articulate your goal so it can inform the actual risk that you take.
0: Okay. We're moving on to my favorite All right. of the people. Um, just because I think she's interesting and you know, there's a historical side to this as well. Okay. So we're going to talk about Hetty Green. So Hetty Green has the unfortunate nickname of the Witch of Wall Street. So a movie they have not made yet. No. Wolf. <laughs> Not which. So she lived in the late 19th century and she was one of the most powerful investors in the world, which at the time and now, frankly, was very rare for a woman. So she was way ahead of her time and she amassed a hundred million dollar fortune, which is $2.3 billion in today's dollars. And she did it all by herself. So investing in railroad stocks and bonds, government bonds, and mining stocks. She also provided a significant amount of money as loans to people and built a bit of a real estate empire, mostly when she foreclosed on people for not paying her back. And nobody knew what to do with her. So she was conducting business at a time when women didn't really do that. She also dressed very plainly and always wore black, and she was notoriously very frugal. So I guess what happens when you're ahead of your time, work with men on Wall Street and wear all black you get called the witch of Wall Street.
1: Exactly. So what did we learn from Hetty Green? Her whole career, she went against the grain. You're never going to get different outcomes as an investor if you just do what everyone else does. And sometimes that is exactly what you want to do because that's good enough to get you where you're going. But if you want to have different outcomes than other investors, you need to do something differently. So let's give some examples of what Hetty did. One great example was that she invested in US dollars when they first came out. This involves a little bit of a history lesson. So, Mark, I think you're perfect to take this on if you wanted to go for it.
0: Okay. I will wake you up when this is over. (laughs) So, we're going back to the Civil War. So, the Civil War in the U.S. lasted a lot longer than people thought it would and was much more expensive than people thought it would be. And so, the U.S. government issued the first currency that was not backed by gold, and they called them greenbacks, which, of course, is what people still call them. And so, many people thought that this was a speculative investment. And they went up and down, the value of these greenbacks went up and down based on how the Union forces were doing in the war. And it was becoming more and more obvious that the Union forces were going to win. And then it started moving based on what people thought the long-term prospects were for the U.S. So after Lee surrendered, a lot of people looked at the country and thought, there are a lot of challenges and people were worried about the prospects for the country. So of course, these greenbacks plunged in value. And they got lower and lower to the point where they got to 50 cents to the gold-backed dollar. And Hetty Green just bought and bought and bought and bought. So in 1875, so that's 10 years after the war, the government folded all the greenbacks into regular U.S. currency and backed them by gold. So of course they went up a lot.
1: So this is an example of where she did something that went against the grain. Hetty went against what everyone else thought because she had courage in her convictions and she understood that she needed to stay true to her beliefs. And she also understood that frankly all her other investments were already caught up in the long term success of the US, and this was not any different. And the only quotes that we can provide from Hetty are all very obvious. We've got a couple here. There is no great secret in fortune making. All you do is buy cheap and sell dear. Act with thrift and shrewdness and be persistent. And the second quote is, I buy when things are low and nobody wants them. I keep them until they go up and people are crazy to get them. That is, I believe, the secret to all successful business.
0: Yeah, and this isn't exactly revolutionary. So a lot of people say this, buy low, sell high. But most people don't do that. But Hetty Green did. So a good analogy around this is the reaction that people have when you are not a true believer in everything going on. The anger that comes from people and the reaction that people have when you have a different point of view is pretty strong.
1: And Mark wrote this series called Bubbleville, where he spoke about this. We'll pop a link to it in our investing Resources section. It's about six months old now, but it talks about how he believes that the markets are overvalued and that it isn't sustainable. And he got quite a bit of flack for it from readers, from his mates, from everyone.
0: Even you, Shani.
1: Not me. I thought it was great.
0: Yeah, you did like them. Yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know, the, the reason for this and what I was talking about before is that People know that what is happening is not normal and it's not sustainable. And all they're really looking for is validation, right? Instead of somebody pointing out that it's not sustainable. And there's just this notion. I think people have this notion that simply pointing this stuff out means that there's going to be a crack Mm -hmm. and that will actually end it. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for
1: our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts
0: and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a Shareside investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. and Take advantage of Shareside's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today.
1: All right, so we've got to move on because we've got a couple more to get through.
0: Okay, we can do this, or it will be 2023 by (laughs) the time you finish listening to this episode. All
1: right, so we'll move on to our next investor, Brent Beshore.
0: Which is a great name, don't you think? Brent Beshore. Only I think so, apparently. It's alliteration, (laughs) Shani.
1: Brent founded a company called Permanent Equity. What they're doing is taking a private equity model and applying it to small family-run businesses. He's an interesting guy who, as soon as he left school, started exploring his interests in investing and looked at inefficient markets. An inefficient market is a market where there can be a large difference between the value of something and the price. We talk about inefficiencies in the market often when we're talking about the active passive barometer and how active managers can outperform passive managers in inefficient markets. And that is a basic principle behind what Brent is doing.
0: Yeah, so Brent wants to find places that have low competition, that are fragmented, where there's less professionalism involved. He thinks these are good opportunities for investors. His thoughts behind this are, why go out and compete with a bunch of people who are really, really smart when you could find a place where they are not?
1: And the other thing he was looking at was focusing in on business operators on where he had an advantage. So he was looking at specialized parts of the market where people are skilled at what they're doing. That's a good place to be. There's not a lot of competition going on there. Maybe you're doing something a little boring that isn't that exciting, but you're very specialized so people aren't going to compete and there are high barriers to entry. So he started a PE company that looks at companies with earnings between $1 and $10 million that were family-owned, and he thought that there would be a competitive advantage there for him because, obviously, a lot of people weren't looking at these companies because they were too small for traditional venture capital.
0: Yeah. So he thought this was a great opportunity. And one of the things he also talks about when looking at these businesses is he talks about he's looking for things that are boring. So he says, boring businesses endure because they consistently solve a meaningful problem, and were patiently built over decades. Their clients, communities, and employees trust their reliability, integrity, and craftsmanship. They won't disappear with trends or fads. The problems they solve existed two decades ago, and they will exist two decades from now.
1: Investing does not need to be exciting for investors, and successful investors often say that it's boring. Businesses have a shelf life, and over time, competitive advantages erode and economic cycles go up and down. So it's the boring businesses that endure and are able to survive for a long time.
0: Yeah, so he refers to something called the Lindy effect, which is a theory that asserts some things, like ideas or books, actually get more durable over time. So the classic example is Plato. So it was read a 1,000 years ago, and chances are it will be read a 1,000 years from now. And those chances are a lot higher than for some random book that came out yesterday. So Brent uses this same theory for companies. The longer a company has been around, the more likely it is that they have the experience to weather all the different kinds of storms, and the greater the likelihood that they will continue operating into the future.
1: So it's a really good lesson for us as investors. And Mark always talks about the Philip Morris example. Instead of all these new and exciting companies with cutting-edge technology, that boring is not a bad place to be as an investor. If you haven't heard about the success of Philip Morris, you can hear the story in our Investor Stories episode. We'll pop a link to it on our resources page. But the short of it is that it is normally the boring that endure, and investing is supposed to be a means to an end. It's not supposed to be exciting.
0: You know, that episode is one of my favorite ones that we did. It was a great episode. I I think so. (laughs) But, you know, once again, um, that's just my opinion. All right. So we've got one more person to get through, and lucky last is Monish Pabraj, He started a hedge fund and he's written a couple of books. So he says something similar to Brent. And it's just that he looks for simple, well-understood businesses and gets acquainted with low-risk, high-uncertainty investing. So what he's doing is he's calling for investing in simple, well-understood businesses. And the theory behind this is that if you invest in industries that have a really slow rate of change, that it's actually going to make the investment a lot less risky.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what he means when he says less risky. He's looking at risk as losing capital permanently. The risk is essentially that the business goes out of business. As investors, we should look at capital loss as the main risk, in Monish's opinion. And then as investors, we should embrace the fact that there will always be uncertainty. We learned that with COVID, nobody except maybe Bill Gates would have predicted that there was going to be a pandemic anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and the future is always uncertain. And Wall Street, of course, hates uncertainty. And it's the uncertainty that's going to drive security prices to extremes because people are worried about the unknown. The focus is on low-risk companies where there isn't much of a chance of a permanent loss of capital, then there's an opportunity because it's the uncertainty that's going to cause that volatility, which gives you an advantage as an investor.
1: He's very much a Buffett disciple. He was a guy that paid something like $650,000 to have lunch with him. And this is a charity auction prize, basically, where you pay to have lunch with Buffett and the proceeds get donated.
0: Yeah, Nobody wants to have lunch with me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if I recall correctly, you so you hosted a webinar where you told this same story about this competition, this charity auction, um, and the bids were coming in hot, mate. I think that it got up to like $2.20 at some point.
0: Yeah, I don't remember. And you had to
1: ask whether you had to like comp lunch. So Yeah,
0: yeah, no exactly. 226 plus a lunch at key.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Anyway, moving on from all the people that don't want to have lunch with me. There are seven questions that Monish came out with that he thinks you should use when you're evaluating stock. We'll go through those very quickly. So the first question, is it a business that I understand very well? And does it squarely fall into my circle of competence? And that is when he's talking about low risk. Do you understand the company and its drivers and how those drivers impact the company? And there's so many investors buying tiny biotech companies or tech companies, and that puts you at a lot of risk because most people don't understand what the business that they're actually investing in does.
1: The next question, do I know the intrinsic value of the business today with a high degree of confidence and how likely is it going to change in the next few years? This is exploring what parts of the environment in which the business operates and the business itself are going to change and what are the drivers that are going to change the intrinsic value of the company. Again, if we take Coca-Cola, there's probably a lot less to think about than some small biotech company trying to invest in a very specific drug for a very specific disease.
0: And he then asks, is the business price at a discount to its intrinsic value today? And what is that margin of safety? As we said before, what is the downside? Is the downside minimal? Think of a company like Coca-Cola again. Does the business have a moat? Is the business run by the able and honest management? These are the questions that Monish asks when he makes an investment. And I will say that going through this checklist is what our analysts try to do. Look at the different types of ratings that they have. They have an uncertainty rating, which is what we equate to business risk. We've got a moat rating, and that's a hard look at competitive advantage and downside risk. And then, of course, you have a star rating. So that's looking at intrinsic value and what is the discount to that intrinsic value.
1: All right. So those are quite a few lessons. Why don't we go through a bit of a summary? The first, don't focus on data collection and noise and instead spend your time thinking about the simple attributes that make truly great businesses. Lesson two, patience is an investing edge and time can de-risk an investment. Lesson three, defining and articulating your goal allows you to determine how you can achieve it with as little risk as possible. Think of the no risk option and use that to determine how much risk you need to take to get to where you want.
0: Yeah, and then lesson four, the only way to achieve a different investing outcome is to go against the grain. So stand your ground and be true to yourself. That's the lesson that Hetty Green, the witch of Wall Street, taught us, of course. I've
1: changed my mind. I do have an New resolution. Okay. By the end of 2022, I want to be referred to as the witch of Wall Street.
0: Okay. So yeah. you're going to purchase black clothing. <laughs> yeah. And be very frugal. Yeah. Okay. I well. think
1: I've covered both of those, to be honest. You think? Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you're not wearing black right now. No. Just so you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> Um. All right, well, that's Shawnee's resolution, but we've got two more lessons, and one of these can be your resolution. <laughs> Embrace boring. Investing is a means to the end, a means to an end, and it isn't supposed to be an exciting spectator sport. The market, in lesson six, the last lesson, the market hates uncertainty. You don't have to. When you have high uncertainty in a low-risk business, the end result is high returns. All right, we did it. Mm-hmm. You came up with the New Year's resolution. I did. I still have nothing. I mean, I could try to be the Witch of Wall Street as well.
1: We could compete.
0: Okay. Who wins when Will calls one of us the Witch of Wall Street? <laughs>
1: Will can be the moderator, yes.
0: Okay. Well, that that works out well. I have almost no black clothing, so uh, <laughs> you're probably off to a head start, but... Anyway, we do want to wish everybody a happy New Year. Thank you for making us a part of your 2021. We hope we can remain a part of your 2022. And once again, any comments, New Year's wishes, um, suggestions for Shani's New Year's resolution, mm-hmm. you can send them to the email address in the episode notes, mark.lamonica1 at morningstar.com. And we love any questions or comments. We'll see who's the first person to give us a good rating and comment in 2022.